Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Season. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to learn a few things on today's show. The chef Scott Conan, you know, that charmer from Food Network's Chopped. He's a local guy. We can claim him as our own. He was born in Waterbury and grew up a stone's throw away in Oakville. If he'd been accepted into his first choice of trade school programs, one of the best known chefs in the country might have become a plumber instead. We talked with Scott about his first job as a dishwasher at the Sea Loft in Waterbury, where he met his first culinary mentor. We'll also talk with Scott about the Italian dishes he's known for and how his wife's Turkish heritage influences the way he cooks at home. And later in the show, did you know that nutritional psychiatry is an emerging science? We're going to introduce you to the country's first nutritional psychiatrist from Harvard. Dr. Uma Naidu is going to help us understand the gut-brain connection and how we might use food as medicine. But first, you probably feel as if you know our first guest because you've watched him judge on Food Network's Chopped for more than a dozen years. Scott Conant is a James Beard award-winning chef, restaurant owner, and cookbook author. His latest book is the most personal yet. It's called Peace, Love, and Pasta, Simple and Elegant Recipes from a Chef's Home Kitchen. Chef Scott Conant, welcome to Seasoned. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can we talk about your upbringing? Sure. Specifically in Waterbury, Connecticut? Absolutely. Happy to. Fantastic. (laughs) What were those early days like? I understand it didn't involve food. You wanted to be a professional athlete of sorts. Well, uh, yeah, I wanted to be a uh, shortstop for the New York Yankees. Whoa, 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 because that was my first aspiration. Was that yours? That was my first aspiration. So it was you you that I was fighting against? (laughs) I thought it was myself this whole time. (laughs) Chef, you don't want to fight with her. It's a bad idea. Yeah, I could tell. I see the fiery eyes. Yeah. <laughs> now I wanted to I wanted to play baseball. And you know, it's funny because I also I went to a vocational school for high school. And for anyone who's familiar with vocational schools or not familiar with them, I should say, you know, you you choose a trade, you choose something that you think you're going to do for the rest of your life when you're like 14, 15 years old. So I chose uh, culinary arts after I was rejected from the plumbing program because I had <laughs> My first choice was to be a plumber. (laughs) You know, and it turns out that serendipity just stepped in and I despise physical labor. So it never would have worked. (laughs) Um, Wait, so then you went to the chef? That's pretty physical. Well, it's physical in a different way, obviously, you know. And, uh, you know, the days of me working the line are are long gone, thankfully, thankfully. But, yeah, I, I, I couldn't get into the plumbing program because too many people had applied. So it was a second choice. I chose culinary arts and um, it all worked out. Simultaneously started working at a friend's, uh, family friend's restaurant called The Sea Loft, which I talk about a little bit in the books. And um, life goes on. It's all good. What do you remember about those early days in culinary arts? I remember just being fascinated by food and the way it came together and flavor profiles and the development of flavors and you know the activity of work. But I think the thing that struck me most and one of my favorite aspects of restaurants to this day is the camaraderie that you find it's like a team as i played a lot of sports as as we discussed it's the same camaraderie that you find on a team that you know you find in a kitchen 
And it was amazing to me that I loved what I was doing. I was there for it every day. I was working 60 hours a week plus going to high school. So I was always at work and I would carry in an, an Escoffier book in my backpack, a Larousse Gastronomique, which are like really iconic, classic French technique cookbooks. Um, and that was what I did. Um, my grades were what they were. I never cared about those things. I knew that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Some pretty intense reading for a high schooler. <laughs> and I had I had a Escoffier <laughs> memorized. I, I don't know how wow. I memorized all that stuff. I, I don't remember any of it today, but I wish I did because it was it was amazing. It was really amazing. I understand your first culinary mentor was a gentleman by the name of Mo Collins. Who was that? How did he become your mentor? Mo was the first guy, I would say, that just took me under his wing and said, this is how you do this job. So Mo was in charge of all preparation at the Sea Loft uh, at the time. And I'm, I'm getting these flashbacks of, of stuff while I'm discussing it with you. He was just a great guy. He was a good friend. Uh, he was a few years older than me. And he just he taught me how to think about you know prepping ahead, staying ahead of the game, staying ahead of the curve. It was great to have a friend like Mo. He's an African-American guy. He lives in North Carolina. We're still in touch. Yesterday was his birthday. As a matter of fact, I text him. You know, he was a friend to me. And he was kind of like that big brother figure of sorts as well in the kitchen. Awesome. Chef, can you talk about going from like cooking in Waterbury restaurants to New York restaurants to Germany, trips to Italy? Just how does all that kind of you know make who you are? My aspirations in life are just to be a hippie, right? That's my great <laughs> aspiration. I thought it was to be a shortstop for MLB. A hippie shortstop. Well, I you know, I've evolved, Fine. I like to think. <laughs> but uh I listened to a lot of uh, music from the 60s and 70s and things like that. And, and I was, I've been listening to a lot of George Harrison lately. And he has this line in a song uh, that really resonated with me. And, it's, and I'm going to paraphrase it. But the further, the further from home, the less you know, right? The further you go from home, the less you know. And that really resonated with me because I always put myself in a situation that to gain knowledge and appreciate other cultures and, and, and somehow find that little thread of a culture that resonates with me. And I can kind of run it through my personal scope of food, you know, high-end Italian food uh, and make it my own. And that's, you know, I feel like that's what those travels have, have provided for me. They've provided me with a tremendous amount of perspective, I would say, and an appreciation for things that I, I wouldn't have otherwise. So the further you go from home, the less you know. That's right. When you were home, what did you think you knew? And I'm hoping you'll talk about Bunker Hill and your grandpa. Not that I'm <laughs> leading the witness, but. Yeah, lead the witness, please. Um, I never wanted to cook Italian food because what I grew up with just wasn't exciting to me. What was exciting were the ingredients. Um, I just didn't like the way they were put together. I, I found this is probably going to raise some eyebrows and I apologize. It doesn't come from a place of judgment, but rather discernment, right? It's just not what I wanted. I didn't want to do gooey tomato sauce and cheese laden food. That wasn't, that wasn't nuanced for me. Those were big flavor profiles that just didn't have a touch. And I wanted to work on things with a, like a specific touch. Waterbury was a great place to start. You know, the, the town I actually grew up in is next to Waterbury called Oakville. But I went to high school in Waterbury. My friends were in Waterbury. I worked in Waterbury. I spent all my time in Waterbury. I was born in Waterbury Hospital. And we would, <laughs> we would go there all the time. But Oakville is a really small town. And, uh, you know, we would play 
baseball in the streets. I mean, that's what we did. We played in the street. A car would come, somebody would yell car. We all got out of the way. And then, you know, we'd go back to playing, you know, that traditional stereotypical upbringing in the suburbs, you know? Uh, but my grandfather had this giant garden and I, and I remember, um, you know, a, with the wind blowing and the basil, just those wafts of basil. And I cannot smell basil to this day and not think of my grandfather Lupo. Lupo Varone, he was a mason, a stonemason. He came to this country. He would always talk about the old country and uh, his really heavy uh, broken English accent. He was, he was my grandfather, you know, great guy, great guy. So, Chef, you have the success in restaurants. In 1998, things start turning into kind of some TV opportunities and it becomes a very, very busy professional life, but it starts to neglect your own personal life a little bit, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I came up, as I said, I was working nonstop. And for me, I had one goal, and that was to break out of that of the habits of my of my father and my uncles and, and the way they lived and my grandparents and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to to break out of this cycle that I constantly saw. And so I just worked. I wanted to get out of Waterbury. I wanted to get out of Connecticut. I wanted to go to New York City. I wanted to work there. I wanted to travel and, and see different things and and experience various cultures and, and people and food and all that kind of stuff. And New York City was the place to do it. 27 years later, I finally moved out of New York City to Arizona. Yeah. It does take its toll, the, the hours. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it starts to beat you up a little bit, but it becomes all you know. Yeah. I mean, you run into this cycle. Oftentimes, we all have this idea in our mind's eye of who we are and who we want to be. And we have a lot to say. We don't always have that opportunity to achieve our potential right? To reach our potential. I wanted to yeah. put myself in a position to be able to reach that potential. And that didn't mean financially. That just meant on a personal basis, like how do I achieve my potential? Um, and I think a lot of times it's, you know, taking the things you think, you know, moving that out of the way and then, you know, with humility moving forward. So do you feel like you reached your potential when you were able to move away from everything that had been so familiar to you up until that point? Well, I think um, reaching your potential is much like uh, perfection, right? It's something you pursue. I don't think you ever actually feel like you achieve it. And, and at least I put myself on a better path of, you know, being a better person, achieving my potential, reaching for that, putting myself in a position to be able to grow and expand and be a better human. And I think part of that is, I know you, you made a conscious decision to focus on your out of work life and getting married and building a family. And is it correct that your yeah. wife, Mel, introduced you to different cuisines, specifically Turkish cuisine? Yeah, my, my wife, Mel, um, her name is Meltem. She's Turkish. We have a home in Turkey. We got married in Bodrum. I was so in love with this old world, which is very similar to the way I grew up on my, on my mother's side of the family, right? That old world appreciation. My, my, as I said earlier, my grandfather would always talk about Italy and the old country and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like it gave me an appreciation for that life, right? That old school, old world appreciation for simplicity and just getting the most out of what you're given as opposed to trying to, you know, trying to find the big house and find happiness there, buying a Porsche and finding happiness there. We all know that those things are elusive. Not that I don't want a big house or a big Porsche, by the way. <laughs> 
Hey, I, I always make the joke, Chef, and say, listen, with that success, you could buy a jet ski, and you've never seen anybody not happy on a jet ski. <laughs> that's, that's, a good, that's a good point. That's a good point. That's the truth. <laughs> Chef, you say there's nothing quite like a Turkish breakfast to make you feel yeah. like part of a family. Can you talk about that experience a little bit for us? Oh, man. You know, if you've never had a Turkish breakfast, so you have to imagine this, right? I want you to take this journey with me for a moment. So imagine a giant table and these beautiful little pieces of pottery that are, you know, decidedly Turkish with the colors and the, you know, the Middle Eastern colors and shapes and patterns and things of that nature. And each one is filled up with something different. You have four or five different types of cheese, feta cheese, olives, fresh tomatoes, fresh cucumbers, breads like pita and Guzleme, this is this other bread, which is in my in, in my book, and all these beautiful breads all laid out in pastama and eggs and this dried uh, beef pastama and a sijik, which is a beef sausage. And I, I mean, you're talking like 25, 30 different things laid out in front of you. And you just pick and choose which ones you want to eat. And it is the best. You can sit there talking, you drink tea, and you have this Turkish breakfast in front of you. And it is it is special uh, and it's a bonding moment for whomever is involved because there's just, if you take joy from the table like I do, you take joy from mm -hmm. food and, and appreciation for foods, there is just no better experience than sitting there and engaging in this almost ritualistic breakfast. It is just spectacular. Manasa, I want a Turkish breakfast. I know. I just practiced making a Turkish bridal soup, which I understand is eaten for breakfast a lot. But what you just described takes Turkish breakfast to a whole other level. It's just awesome. Yeah. You're listening to our conversation with Food Network star and cookbook author Scott Conant. His latest book is Peace, Love, and Pasta. Later in the hour, you'll hear my conversation with the country's first nutritional psychiatrist. And honestly, I don't know how we've gone this long without one. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, Scott describes what he calls a proper bolognese and shares some of the Italian dishes he's become famous for, like pasta pomodoro. You can identify the flavor of the tomatoes, the infused oil, the garlic, the basil, the crushed red pepper, that nutty Parmesan flavor that fills up your head. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking with Food Network star, restaurant owner, and cookbook author Scott Conant. His latest cookbook is Peace, Love, and Pasta. It is filled with recipes he makes at home for his wife and daughters. Before the break, we talked about Scott's love for Turkish cuisine. It's the food of his wife's heritage. We wondered how it might be similar to or different from the Italian cuisine Scott has become famous for. The food is just different. You know, there's a lot of similar ingredients, but the end result is very different. But I feel like it's the approach that's similar. There's an appreciation for life. There's the simplicity, which isn't always simple, by the way. Right? I don't want to mistake simplicity for simple or easy or nonchalant, right? That's not what I want to mistake it for. I want it, it's deliberate, where, you know, you have these beautiful ingredients that are just happy together, right? They're just happy they belong together. And I feel like that's the appreciation. And also, 
you know, when I think about Italian food in, in, in a lot of foods of around the world, overall, it's just an appreciation for life and a simplicity towards life. And, you know, 90% of the problems that we have are problems that we create in our own mind. And I feel like if we just drop all that stuff and just focus on the beauty of, of the ingredients in front of us, particularly when it comes to food, uh, we'll have a new appreciation for life. So, Chef, in the book, Peace, Love, and Pasta, Simple and Elegant Recipes from a Chef's Home Kitchen. The book is beautiful, by the Thank way. You. you say, simplicity is the ultimate luxury. I love that. I think that's great. And the book is made up of like the greatest hits and favorite cooking memories throughout your career. Mm. Uh, talk about how do you go from writing like a regular cookbook to a book like this, where it's just so much you know, history from your own personal story? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about you know, why I do what I do and, and how that's evolved. When you're focused solely on your career, a lot of things in life will pass you by. And I tried to identify that balance between the two of the things that I love most about food and the things that I love most about my family, my little, my daughters, they're not so little anymore, but my daughters in particular, because I, I'm not going to be here forever. And I hope that they're going to carry forth some things that were important to me and important to us as a family. And that's the story that's being told, right? It doesn't have to always be about words. Um, it could just be about actions and about, you know, that appreciation and giving to one another. There's something very powerful, I feel like, if you feed someone and you cook from that place of love. You know, it's sustenance, it's life, and it's hopefully longevity at the same time. In the intro, I love the sentiment how your wife's teaching your daughters to speak Turkish as their second language, and your you know, your second language is food, which I wish I was smart enough to think of that. I could tell my kids that, but uh, <laughs> I, I just love how it's, it's so important how food can connect everybody. It's just such a great sentiment. Thank you. Thank you. It's um, it's important to me. I feel like besides English, the only language I'm truly fluent in is the, the language of food. Yes, yeah, Scott and I have played this game on live television where he started speaking Spanish and I started responding in Spanish and suddenly our cooking demo made you very nervous. I, I, well, I, yeah, you know, I, I know my limitations and I, and I overstepped them. It was great. It's called, it it's was called, fantastic. It's kitchen Spanish, might have thought. It's kitchen it Spanish. It was fantastic. Kitchen, kitchen Spanish. Yeah, you don't want me to start busting out my kitchen Spanish. Oh, no. you, trust me, you, you really do not want that. <laughs> As chefs, we're, we're multilingual. We speak kitchen Spanish, kitchen right. French. Uh, we got right. all of it. That's right. Scott, can we talk about the book since we're, since we're sure. here? You have an interesting bit, a take on condiments like salt and pepper. Are we misusing salt and pepper? What am I missing here? Let me clarify this. Salt and pepper, I think they're just not automatically married together. They shouldn't necessarily just automatically complete one another sentence. I, I've worked in restaurants in the past and I see people even doing it at home where they have this little container with salt and pepper already mixed, pre-mixed. And, no. and, and it hurts my heart because I don't, first of all, I'm not a huge pepper fan. I like chili flakes. I like uh, various other peppers and things that are nuanced that you can identify the nuanced flavors, you know, in the back of your palate, or you can even breathe it afterwards or something along those lines. But I feel like black pepper is just a misunderstood ingredient that has flavor. Salt is an enhancement. It enhances flavors of different uh, products. Uh, and it could even enhance the flavors of pepper, for example, right? But at the end of the day, pepper is its own unique flavor. And I feel like very oftentimes it's overused. I find it that it sometimes gets in the way of, of some really clean, clear flavors that you're trying to identify in a dish. 
And friends, stop taking black pepper and cooking with it. Finish with it. Black pepper will burn, and it burns. It tastes bitter. Just finish with it if you're going to use it. Sorry. That's right. You, you're preaching Agreed. to the choir here, chef. And stop buying the pre-ground stuff. That stuff can be 10 years old. Stop buying that. If you smell it and it smells like feet, don't <laughs> buy it. Like You can't use that stuff. You heard yeah. it here first, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Not that my feet smell like black pepper, by the way. I just, you know, just to clarify. Your secret's safe with us and our millions and trillions of listeners. I'm going to save us because I'm particularly interested in your feelings about pasta. It is in the title of the book, but specifically pasta pomodoro. Yes. Which seems so simple, but I guess it goes back to your original mindfulness about so simple. simplicity can be elevated and all that sort of business. Yes. You know, that pasta pomodoro, has, it's been something I've been cooking for decades now. And um, I've gotten a tremendous amount of press about it over the years. And it's funny, people would come into, I had very high-end fancy restaurants. I've had casual restaurants. I've had everything in between. And the one thing, particularly when people come in and they do a tasting menu, right? They'll give us a whole bunch of things. We want to taste a whole bunch of stuff. Inevitably, 10, 12, 14 courses later, I say, was there anything that really stood out for you? You know, They always say, inevitably, that spaghetti was just something else. And I, you know, I like to think I'm more than my spaghetti, but apparently I'm not. <laughs> you're not. not. When it comes down to I'm it, not. your tombstone will say it was all about his spaghetti. It's the spaghetti guy. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and that's fine because it is a sum of its parts. I mean, I only, I take those fresh tomatoes. I use either plum or Roma tomatoes. We peel, seed them, crush them with a, like a big potato masher. We only cook the tomatoes for about 40, 45 minutes. Finish it with this infused oil of garlic and crushed red pepper. We'll put basil, whole bunches of basil directly in that sauce and let it kind of cool down uh, with the basil inside of it. Remove the basil. It's crushed so we don't pass or puree the tomatoes any longer. And then we'll reduce that sauce in a saute pan, add pasta to it, a little bit of butter, a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, pinch of crushed red pepper, maybe some salt, fresh basil, and just toss it together. And I know it sounds really simple and it sounds like something that everybody does, but it is truly the sum of its parts where you can identify the flavor of the tomatoes, the oil, the infused oil, the garlic, the basil, the crushed red pepper, those layers of flavors, the creaminess of the butter, the great Parmesan cheese, that nutty Parmesan flavor that fills up your head. And the textures are just sexy. Yeah. That's the sum of its parts, right? Together, singular, but harmonious simultaneously. It's delicious. I think it sounds incredible. Yeah. But chef, we Thank also got to really talk about bolognese because you know it doesn't really get more authentic than your bolognese. You got some tricks that are pretty integral to, to success here. Well, you know, I I learned how to make uh, bolognese sauce from a from a guy from Bologna who learned from his mother. His name was Dino Baldini, uh, and I worked with another great guy. And I and I have to mention he's the executive chef of Barilla USA. His name is Lorenzo Boni, oh, wow. and Lorenzo is a, a longtime friend. He was the first sous chef that I worked for in New York City when I moved there in 1990. He's just mensch. I, I love him to death. So Dino and uh, Lorenzo were the guys who, who taught me how to make a proper bolognese sauce. Um, and I use white wine. I don't use any herbs. I don't use any, there's nothing green inside there. And when I, when I, uh, when I make it, I use sunflower oil uh, or a neutral flavored oil as opposed to extra virgin olive oil. Wow. Yeah, I know that's crazy, right? Um, <laughs> I don't want those. Uh, I don't want something like an olive oil to overwhelm and kind of be the boss 
of the flavor profiles that that are that are happening at that bullet so makes total sense yeah that's that's what we do i literally add just a touch of butter we toss it with the tagliatelle and in right now what i'm doing is finishing it with this uh, fontina fonduta and it's just this beautiful creamy cheese sauce of fontina uh, finished on top of that bolognese and i mean it, it's just naughty it's kind of naughty a little naughty is never <laughs> wrong scott conant you have been such a pleasure i really do think you could give a ted talk on just pasta pomodoro i'm serious that sounds amazing call ted I don't know who he is. Yeah, get him. I'd be happy to. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. If I need a reference, I'm going to use your I'm going to use your name also. Chef Scott Conant, thank you for joining us on Seasoned. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was James Beard award-winning chef, Food Network star, and cookbook author Scott Conant. You know that pasta pomodoro he just waxed poetic about? It's on our site, along with two other recipes from Peace Love and Pasta, simple and elegant recipes from a chef's home kitchen. You'll find a cast iron skillet chicken with fingerling potatoes. It's a family favorite. And Scott's Connecticut-style lobster rolls, too. Go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, the doctor is in. Meet a pioneer in the field of nutritional psychiatry. It's no longer just your doctor saying, oh, eat a salad. There's actually science to show that eating these nutrients help with inflammation and so much more. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We promised at the top of the hour you'd learn a few things this episode. Nutritional psychiatry is an emerging specialty that recognizes the importance of and connection between the food we eat and our mental health. Marisol spoke with our next guest about her work in this field and how we might use food as medicine. Dr. Uma Naidu is a nutritional psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School, and she is a professionally trained chef. She's also the author of this is your brain on food, an indispensable guide to the surprising foods that fight depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, and more. And with that, welcome to Seasoned, Dr. Uma Naidu. Thanks so much, Marisol. It's great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you after that very wordy title. You cover it all in this book, which is so fascinating to me. But before we get into that, I have to know, what exactly is a nutritional psychiatrist? Is it a fairly new profession? It's a really more nascent field within psychiatry. It really came about in the last decade, decade and a half, as the emerging research around the gut microbiome and the gut-brain connection emerged. So it's not necessarily how every psychiatrist is practicing, but where nutrition is such a key lifestyle factor which changes both physical diseases and now mental health, I personally think it really should be integrated in our daily visits that we're having with patients. It's also my understanding that the American Psychiatric Association recognizes you as the very first nutritional psychiatrist. Is that correct? They have. I've been honored to be writing the first text for the American Psychiatric Association in this area of nutritional psychiatry. I feel that's a great honor. So 
Well, congratulations. It is quite an honor because I think it really opens up the dialogue about the subject of your book and, and surely your life's work, The Brain in Food. On top of this, this title, right, of a nutritional psychiatrist, you're also a professional chef, and Julia Child was a bit of a North Star. She certainly was. Uh, strangely enough, because I grew up in a large South Asian family, there were always my grandmother, my mom, my older cousins, my aunts who were cooking. What we discovered was I loved to bake. My mom is a double border physician, and she recognized that I loved science, so she taught me how to bake. I continued to do that and realized later in life, I really didn't know how to cook, especially when I was moving away to study. And that's when my own journey began and where Julia Child entered my life because I would be studying and I would watch her on public television in Boston. She made everything seem easy. She was incredibly smart and always offered you facts and education as she taught, but she made it fun. And so she really was an inspiration and when she, she sort of re-entered my life in the sense that I found out as I read through her cookbooks and her work and her biography, this was her second career. And I thought, well, why not me? That's what inspired me. I love that story. And I couldn't yeah. agree with you more that she made everything so approachable. It's okay if the omelet breaks. <laughs> we'll, we'll somehow fix it. Right. And she did it with such authority. You know, it was fun. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> You know, this subject of the brain and food is so fascinating to me because I've always suspected, based on nothing other than a gut feeling, pun not intended, right. that the younger people that I've had in my family or that I've observed, this is my second career, I used to be a high school English teacher, I oh. often wondered about what they were eating for lunch mm. and how that affected the fact that they would lose their minds when mm. they came to me for seventh period English. Mm. And I would say, my gosh, if only I had them at 10.30 in the morning, maybe I would see a different student. Wow. So this is really something that I have been mulling about in my brain for so long. And I wonder if you can answer that question for me. Would I have gotten a different student had they not been eating chicken nuggets and french fries? Um, and if I got them maybe at 1030 in the morning? Marisol, I love that you asked that question because you're right on the money. I'm guessing that they probably did eat chicken nuggets and french fries and what we often call the standard American diet or the SAD diet, which is full of processed, ultra-processed junk foods and fast foods with a ton of ingredients in that food, which actually drives our brain health in the wrong direction. And it really happens through disruption of the gut. What you observe is incredibly accurate. And now science has shown us that. It's fascinating because you in the book, you, you talk about the gut as a second brain. Talk to me about what that gut-brain connection is. It turns out that many of us would not associate the gut and the brain as organs that are connected but they arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo as our bodies are developing, and then they grow apart to form these organs. They arise from the same tissue. Then throughout our lives, they are connected by the 10th cranial nerve called the vagus nerve. And what the vagus nerve serves to do is it acts like a two-way chemical messaging system between these two organ systems, 24-7, 365 days a year, so these two organs are always in communication. The, the, gut, the gut and the brain, you mean? When you say that these two organs, you mean the gut and the brain, the they're gut. constantly communicating? Yes, okay. that is correct. So the gut and the brain are constantly communicating, having arisen from the same cells and now being connected by the vagus nerve. In addition to that, the gut contains 90 to 95% of serotonin and the serotonin receptors, which we know serotonin is often called the happiness hormone. 
So there's a good component of those right in the gut, and they interact with gut microbes, um, you know, the, the, the gut microbiome as being connected to the brain is also involved with other neurotransmitters. So it turns out the gut and the brain not only are connected and in communication, but there's an extensive enteric nervous system within the gut. And so the gut is often called the second brain for these different reasons. First of all, I never knew that these two organs were communicating with one another and that they would have such a, a massive impact on us. And it sort of brings me back to what I think we've all experienced for the past two years during the pandemic. We always see food trends every year, but I think particularly when people were becoming more hyper-focused on eating the right things to boost immune systems or eating the right things to avoid fatigue as we were all trying to combat this strange pandemic. So what do you make of that? You know, is this how we have evolved because more and more of us are being affected by horrible gut health? I definitely think two factors, Marisol, more, more Americans than not. And obviously this is a generalization. I'm not intending to be insulting of anyone. I'm certainly not a perfect eater. I try my best. But where many of us in the United States are probably consuming aspects of that standard American diet with processed and highly processed junk foods and fast foods, there is a considerable impact on gut inflammation. So many of us might be walking around with, you know, some discomfort in the gut, some gas, some bloating. So the one factor is that sort of not great diet is driving inflammation. The other factor is that, you know, the pandemic has shown some of the highest sales of processed foods, given there was so much angst and panic, understandably, for many Americans, seeing grocery, uh, empty grocery shelves was a very new thing at the start of the pandemic. And even now with supply chain issues, you sometimes go to a supermarket and some of the produce section is entirely empty. I think that many people then relied on shelf-stable foods that are processed and will last you know, for a month and people stocked up. But also the, the angst of the isolation and quarantine and everything that we have endured you know, people were reaching out for the cookies and candy and ice cream. So it's a combination of how we're eating regularly. Then add the layer of how much has happened over the pandemic. And we're not in the greatest state of health. What we also know is that studies have shown that more than 80% of Americans have some portion of poor metabolic health. What that speaks to is that we then are more vulnerable to infections and other conditions, including poorer mental health. So it sort of all ties together, if that makes sense. It makes 100% sense to me. Can we no longer divorce mental health and our diet? In other words, do we really need to, as humans, as consumers of nutrition, do we really need to look at mental health and what we eat as sort of bisecting circles or concentric circles? I feel that we should. Being a nutritional psychiatrist, mm -hmm. it's the work that I do. But I also feel where nutrition, as I'd mentioned, is a huge lifestyle factor in reversing medical conditions like type 2 diabetes and others, where if you adjust your diet with the guidance of your doctor, maybe a nutritionist working with you, and I want to point out Marisol, it's often including exercise, outdoor time, things like mindfulness, meditation. Nutrition is a key player in that. Many people actually feel healthier will be able to work with their doctors to lower certain medications, in some instances even come off certain medications. 
over time, research has shown us that this is a powerful factor. Nutrition and the power at the end of our fork is very compelling. So I personally feel that where we, many people may not have seen a therapist or a psychiatrist or have a condition that was diagnosed, but maybe feeling a little blue, anxious, maybe, you know, parts of the Northeast where we get less sunshine, seasonal affective disorder is pretty predominant. Individuals, you know, could actually be starting to look in their pantry for better food, look in their fridge for more healthy whole foods to start that path to starting to feel better. While getting to be evaluated by a therapist or mental health practitioner, they can actually start some of this on their own. And I want to point out that nutrition is key in every condition. However, if someone is acutely mentally ill, suicidal, actively suicidally depressed or manic or has lost touch with reality, while nutrition is always important, you know, they may first need to see an emergency room doctor, a psychiatrist very urgently because of their safety. Absolutely, 100%. There's so many layers to mental health. I just love that we're, we're spotlighting food because we are, after all, a food show. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned something specifically about food as medicine. And you said, you know, you can start by looking in your own pantry. A catchphrase or a key word that I've seen thrown around a lot is this idea of the microbiome, the optimal microbiome. Can you define for us what that is and why it is important for us to have that? The microbiome, let's start with the fact that about 39-odd trillion microbes of different kinds, they include bacteria, viruses, and others, live in the gut. You cannot see them. They're microscopic. Probably if you put them all together, they would be the size of a medium avocado. But they they hang out in the gut to really help us. Their main purpose is to be involved in many, many functions, vitamin production, hormones, sleep and circadian rhythm, which is our internal body clock, immunity, helping with mental health, and so many more things. Now, when we think about those microbes and we include their genetic material, the term microbiome exists to describe it. When we refer to the microbes and microbiome, we're really referring to this interaction of these microbes which have now been studied, burgeoning area of research in the last decade and a half to two decades, which has shown us the power of these microbes in impacting all of our different types of health, but also our mental health. Thinking about putting that together with that gut-brain connection, you have the microbes living there, they're interacting with the food that gets digested. But remember, the gut and brain are connected. So any messages that they are interacting with, any chemicals, any assistance with chemical uh, neurotransmitters that are being produced, it's an interactive ecosystem. So we can really no longer separate out just what we eat or what the microbes are doing. They're all interacting all of the time. And research has shown that things like emotional stress, a stressful event at work, within two hours will start to impact the microbes and your microbiome. So you may not initially feel something, but it could be setting up for dysbiosis or inflammation of the gut over time. Did you say it takes two hours for that microbiome situation? It is actually impacting your microbiome, and science has shown that. Within two hours, these microbes are responding to that stress because stress is a huge driver of disease in the world. Mm -hmm. We don't think about it that way, but stress is actually a massive factor, which is why my approach is one that's holistic, integrated, and functional in psychiatry, holistic, because, you know, I grew up 
with my grandparents teaching me yoga meditation. And I guess early on, I may have, whether I knew it cognitively or not, appreciated that it was a value to me as I continued doing it. But here's the thing. The reason I always talk about mindfulness is that stress relief, learning a breathing exercise, learning a mindful practice, listening to an app that helps you, uh, listening to music, going out for a walk if you feel stressed. These are really key lifestyle factors together with nutrition, which impact that microbiome. So, you know, we want to be thinking about it as a system, our entire body, but really realizing how powerful the gut microbiome is. So many people will turn to food for comfort, or they'll turn to alcohol for comfort. And, you know, I I even know at my own dinner table, we're all running around. And sometimes we'll we'll finish our food in 15 minutes. And then an hour later, I'm like, Oh, my gosh, my stomach is killing me. Why I destroyed my food, you know, I I, so what is the approach to that to, to folks who say, you know, I'm going to wallow in this rice pudding or right. because comfort food is, is still going to be comforting because I think there are times where I will eat my mother's food and I think about growing up and it brings back really great memories and I feel wonderful, mm-hmm. but that's not always the case. It's true. And I guess it depends on what comfort food you're eating, right? And right. when people eat ice cream, they might look at me and say, but Dr. Nido, I feel good when I eat that. And they're right. They're not wrong about that. It's the problem that I saw is the long-term effect of these consistent habits, which are not really great for your brain health. So if we're constantly leaning on comfort foods and saying, well, I'm going to relent and I'm just going to have that cupcake or that cookie or the ice cream or the fried food, and that's what you're doing during the pandemic, it's time to sort of take a step back, think about being mindful about the choices you're making, find some quiet time to reassess things for yourself. Because if you continue on that path of I'm just going to do it. I'll exercise more. The truth is you can't exercise out of a bad diet. You can't supplement your way out of a bad diet. You, what you have to do differently is add, add in more healthy whole foods and start to cut back a little bit on those unhealthy choices. You know, no one's saying never eat a comfort food meal. And that's why I designed, you know, the pillars of nutritional psychiatry. I think having an openness to knowing you can make a better choice next time or that you can enjoy that that comfort food that your mother prepared, mm-hmm. realizing it's not the best for your brain. But right. guess what? You know, you can take care of your brain at the next meal. I think we need to have that flexibility and not be rigid around these diet wars and food dilemmas that the country gets into. Right. Kind of this eat this, not that mentality. Right, right. I was thinking about the 80-20 rule, which is what we try to implement in my home, and it's one of your six pillars. So would you mind going through your six pillars for our listeners of nutritional psychiatry? I'd I'd love to. So I have six pillars of nutritional psychiatry, and I try to encourage people towards sustainable, healthy habit changes that become part of how they live, not just, you know, let's lose five pounds before family wedding or an award show, which tends to be our mentality. Yes, for all the awards show that my, my producer Robin and I go to. Right, Robin? We're, we're, get, we're trying to lose those last five for the red carpet. <laughs> it's, you know, the red carpet is important. So, um, but, but here's the thing. I think that, that when, when those things happen, they don't, they're not sustainable. So the first one is be whole, eat whole, which is, you know, store-bought orange juice, which is loaded with added sugars and no fiber, and actually eat the orange eat that piece of fruit and enjoy that actual whole food. The next is, you know, that 80-20 rule, you might come across a cupcake, you might visit your mom and have that meal that you love. That's part of the 20% uh, of the time that life happens. 
But for 80% of the time, try your best to make that better effort for, you know, healthier foods, healthier whole foods. The next is eat the rainbow. While we talk about this all the time, there are actually rich plant polyphenols and antioxidants in colorful vegetables and fruit, anthocyanins from blueberries, carotenoids from carrots, which interact with these gut microbes in a very positive way to help produce positive breakdown products for our brain and for our gut. So it's no longer just your doctor saying, oh, eat a salad, eat lots of colors. There's actually science to show that eating these nutrients from from such foods actually help the gut microbiome. Um, They help with inflammation. They help with the antioxidants and so much more. My other rule is the greener, the better. Turns out that leafy greens are pretty powerful. Spinach, uh, arugula, romaine, whichever lettuces that you love, the greener, the better. They actually contain a nutrient called folate, which is vitamin B9. And uh, low levels of folate associated with depression. So making sure that you have several healthy servings as part of your salad, or maybe you make it as a side dish with your dinner or your lunch, is important. It's not just your doctor saying, oh, go ahead and eat a salad. There's more, much more science to it now than before. Another one is, you know, tap into your body intelligence. We start to recognize our behavior changes after we eat something or we develop a headache after a certain food or in the afternoon after lunch, you can't think clearly. You need that cup of coffee. You're going to the vending machine for, you know, pretzels or a cookie or, or you're getting one more thing to perk you up, maybe a candy bar. It's time that we kind of stopped and said, hey, this is a feeling that's happening in my body. It might be related to what I've been eating for the last few weeks. And that's really what body intelligence is about. There's consistency and balance. Uh, so it's really about making this a sustainable life change than the, you know, the, the red carpet diet, let's say. And um, another important aspect that I always like to throw in is remember that with mental health, it's also avoiding certain foods or limiting them that help you. Many people don't realize that more, most of the artificial sweeteners not every single one of them, but including ones that are considered natural can actually worsen conditions like anxiety. And research has shown that. Before I let you go, I'm asking for a friend. And by a friend, I mean me. (laughs) Uh, If you have been, (laughs) I'm 47. I grew up on a healthy diet of Puerto Rican food. And I was also an athlete. I'm still an athlete. And I've been trying for the past 10 years to sort of reverse all the bad eating that I did. Is it possible for us to reverse the damage that we've done to that brain-gut connection? And if so, how do we do it? Two powerful things. Our brain can change because we now understand neuroplasticity. It used to be that we thought only starfish can regenerate, but our our brain can heal itself. Uh, We can always walk ourselves back um, from these conditions, understanding that gut and brain are connected. And, you know, I'm not obviously not referring to someone who's already developed Alzheimer's or cognitive disorder that is genetically based or otherwise has has other conditions. But generally, if we, we have some brain fog or we have some, you know, mild to moderate depression or some symptoms, nutrition can clinically really help how we feel and management of those symptoms. The other very powerful thing is that making dietary changes can, in fact, help you reverse that gut healing research shows that about 28 days of assuming a healthier diet and eating healthier whole foods and nutrients is going to help the healing of your gut. Places to start. Fermented foods help reduce gut inflammation. 
So adding in fermented foods to your diet, adding in prebiotic foods, simple things, garlic, leeks, onions are all prebiotic. These nurture and feed those gut microbes. Much, much more science is coming forward now about just increasing the vegetables you're eating. They, you know, things like sulfurophane-rich vegetables, cauliflower, cabbage, Brussels sprouts are rich in that antioxidant. They're low-calorie. They're very satiating. You can eat a lot more of them. And, you know, having that with a clean source of protein, and I've been encouraged to see that it really has helped many of the patients in my clinic. Dr. Naidu, thank you so much for this very powerful conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you. Thanks so much, Marisol. I loved your questions and your insights, and I really appreciate your interest in my work. That was Dr. Uma Naidu, a nutritional psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. She's the author of This Is Your Brain on Food. And if you're looking for inspiration for dinner tonight, visit our site for recipes from today's episode. You'll find three new recipes from Scott Conan's cookbook there right now. Go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Tolarski. Our interns are Sarah Gasparotto and Michaela Sabat. Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, you can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food in our state and beyond. See you next week.